concern. But uh, whenever you get family together and friends, there's always a little bit of merging traffic, isn't there? And uh, the lives together one with another. It's a joy to be able to kick off uh, a few weeks here as we begin moving our way towards the Christmas season. And uh, I am glad that you have uh, taken the initiative to be back in church. Maybe you uh, traveled this weekend or maybe... Um, you have travel ahead of you, I don't know, but uh, we are going to step into this series, and as Joe mentioned, we want this to be not only a series for us as a church body, but for you to invite your friends and for you to take that postcard that's in your program and to be able to pass that out to others, friends, relatives, work associates, neighbors, whoever it may be, and try to get them uh, to be a part of this season because what we're going to be focusing on in this uh, series and then up to Christmas Sunday on the 22nd, Christmas Eve service on the 24th at 5 p.m. is is really the heart of what our faith is all about. Will you pray with me? Lord, today we just ask that uh, you would allow us to gather around your word with you to impart to us uh, enlightenment that comes only through your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you. I thank you for everyone who's gathered here today, especially if there's individuals who are new this morning. We just pray that we would gather around the family table and be able to hear from your spirit and be quickened in our spirit to sort of align and recalibrate our life for this month, especially this Advent season, that we'd be able to worship you in the true beauty of your holiness and all that you're doing. In your name we pray. God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, I have a thought. And I don't know, maybe it's a, a naive thought, I don't know. But uh, this thought is that we have um, a lot of different perspectives, maybe, uh, on the faith. But this is my thought. I don't know why... Everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. I don't know why everybody wouldn't want Christianity to be true. Now, this is not saying that um, uh, I don't want to believe that it's true or I believe that it's true. It's like, why wouldn't you want the Christian faith, the, the heart of an understanding of what God is doing. Why wouldn't you want that to be true? Now, you may not believe that it's true. That's a whole different kind of uh, matter. Maybe you, you know, have some um, inhibitions of belief in certain things, and whether it's the miraculous or an understanding or anything, that's a separate issue of what I'm saying here. Why wouldn't you want Christianity to be true? Now, this isn't maybe the version of Christianity that you grew up with or the version of Christianity that we propagate today, but the original version of the Christian faith, why wouldn't want anybody want it, not want it to be true? Because in the heart of it is something incredibly, incredibly beautiful. Now, like I said, you may say, I don't believe it's true. That's another fact. You can always research things and try to come up with an understanding for why we believe what we believe and all that. It's the question of, I don't want it to be true. All right? A lot of people, you know, say, well, I, I don't know why. Why wouldn't I want it to be true? Blaise Pascal, he was, uh, some people say, the father of the modern computer. He, um, a mathematician, a physicist, a philosopher, 
uh, 17th century, he says this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. Now, maybe you can think about uh, uh, some of the interest of your friends, maybe your own interest, maybe when you think of different generations. Pascal's saying I, people arrive not on the basis of their proof, but what they find attractive. Now, what he's not saying, and what I'm not saying, is not that something uh, should be believed because it's attractive. But the reality is people usually end up believing something more because it's attractive maybe than because it's ultimately true. But with the Christian faith, it's attractive. It's attractive in its original version. And when we walk through this Christmas season, we need to uphold the reality of what Christianity, the Christian faith, really is. And we need to grab it afresh and anew in our hearts if we're Christ followers this morning. And if you're not a Christ follower this morning and you're just sort of checking God out and trying to figure it out, I want to let you know, I don't know what you grew up with or what you've been around at work or what you uh, interface with maybe with, with peers and social settings. But the real Christian faith is attractive. And it's attractive because God's the one who created it. And it's attractive because of one particular word. And this word is a word that maybe you didn't identify growing up with, or maybe it's hard for you to grab hold of now. But you're thinking since maybe you, you ever got in trouble sometimes, like bad trouble, and you've been caught, like, I don't know, high school, middle school, college, you came home and your parents had everything laid on the table that they found in your room. And they said, look, it's right here. What, what are you doing, right? And you're thinking, oh my God. I'm, and you're, you're thinking, okay, I, I need some help here because I'm in a bad, bad place, right? It's, it's a word that all of us desire to have. Maybe you come home late at night and your wife's waiting up for you and going, what's going on? Or maybe it's the husband that's waiting up for you. Maybe your kids are waiting up for you. Maybe your know, boss calls you into your office and he sort of has to have that hard talk with you. And in that moment, you're wanting this word. It's the word grace. Grace. It's what we crave most when our guilt is exposed. Grace. Could, could there be grace in this? But it's not just what we crave most uh, when we expect it. I mean, when we're wanting it, it's also this. It's what we hesitate to extend when confronted with the guilt of others. Grace. Grace. That's what? Real authentic, attractive Christianities supposed to be about the original version. And that's what Christmas is about. You see, grace, grace, when you're on the receiving end of it, it's refreshing. It's refreshing. But when you're on the other end of it, it's disturbing. It's disturbing. Because, see, when you're supposed to extend grace to someone else, 
It's sort of hard to do that if they've done you wrong. And, and worst of all, it's, it's if they've done maybe a loved one wrong or a family member wrong. And it's hard for us to extend the grace. And, and so we have this mixed emotions. But it's refreshing when we get it extended to us. But it's disturbing or unsettling when we have to extend it to others. And so we end up being caught between these two tensions concerning this beautiful, attractive word about grace. But grace can only happen in the context of a relationship. And usually it has to happen when there's sort of in the scales of the balance, there's a deficiency on one end. There's some negative thing that has happened. And then the other scale has to give grace back and forth. Grace does not exist outside of relationship. It doesn't exist outside of relationship. We can't recognize or receive grace for what it is until we're convinced that we don't deserve it. I've had to contemplate um, this statement that's up here. Um, I'm sorry, we didn't define what grace is. Undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. I must have missed one somewhere in here. Did I? My monitor's not working up here, Josh. Um, the That's what happens when you get mixed up with where you're at. Thank you. That was really good, Mike. Thanks for extending grace. The unsettling solution for almost about everything. That's the name of the series, right? But define it this way. Grace really is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. And uh, I was uh, contemplating the whole concept of grace and understanding that grace is mixed together with justice and mercy and then grace is being given upon that top of that of things you didn't know that you uh, didn't deserve it's favor that's extended to you and i but here's the key about grace and this is the point i want to get into a little lost track of grace cannot be experienced or understood unless you know you don't deserve it unless you know you don't deserve it it's sort of like uh, planning your own surprise party. If you're planning your party, it's not going to be a surprise. You can take that away and think about that today. You can't do it. So also with grace, grace, if you feel you deserve grace, deserving, that feeling of deserving voids the whole concept of grace. That's why you need to come to reality with this phrase that I mentioned. We can't recognize or receive grace for what it is until we're convinced that we don't deserve it. Now, as I've been thinking about that statement this week, I've had to realize that me in my life, as I've gone through, I appreciate all the grace that's been extended to me by others, by my parents, by my friends, by my spouse, by my family. I especially appreciate the grace that's been extended to me in 
from God and, and how you know he's given the forgiveness and he has favor towards me, that kind of thing. But there's a small part of me after a number of years where you live and you think, wow, I deserve grace. But you don't. I don't. Grace cannot be experienced until you understand that in your relationship with others or in your relationship with God, there is this huge deficiency. And so when we celebrate Christmas this season, when we think about trying to extend all that God has for us, we need to get back around the attractiveness, the beauty of what the Christmas message, what Christianity is about. And Christianity is about grace. And it was something that the Apostle uh, John saw and understood up close. He saw and he understood it up close. And that's why John, in his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he starts out and he begins to acknowledge the beauty of the faith because God had to show up. God had to show up for us to understand grace because grace is only experienced within a relationship. We would have never known the grace of God without the presence of God. And so John, one of those who had an up-close view of Jesus Christ, one who lived to be very old, contrary to some of the other disciples that lost their lives or died earlier, John in his later years, he says, you know what, I need to sit down and maybe write this story to let people understand Jesus and what God did. And so he sits down, and he probably was blind. He was maybe an unlearned kind of Galilean. Sometimes they say, well, how could Galileans have written such incredible stuff of the, the Word of God? And it's because they sat down with scribes, and scribes usually had a couple languages that they knew, and, and they were able to articulate it. And so John, the Apostle Paul, John, he sits down, and he begins to articulate this beautiful story, this attractive story of the Christian faith, and a whole understanding of grace. Grace. And so you find in the first part of his gospel, these words in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He says, now I don't, I don't know if I can really comprehend all this or how am I going to communicate to this but to everybody, but you need to understand the word God himself is referencing there. He became flesh for us to understand this incredible, attractive gift of grace God became flesh. He dwelt among us. He interacted with us. When we, we saw him, we saw him. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son. This is an eyewitness account. John saying, I lived with him. I walked with him. We talked with him. We saw his miracles. We saw how he, how he treated people. And we, we did it up close. This wasn't a, a, a you-me or a, an I-me kind of thing. This is a we-we a, a thing. That It wasn't a we-we. All of us, it's, he's saying, I, we, the disciples, we were there. And so here we are 2,000 years later reflecting back upon it, especially in this Christmas month. And 
John is going to tell us about what he experienced. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. I can't comprehend this. Who came from the Father. He was sent from the Father, and he came, he dwelt among us, and then he puts this phrase right in the heart of the front part of his gospel. And the phrase that is is important for us to grab a hold of as, as we refresh ourselves on the attractiveness of the Christian faith. He says, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Both. He was full on grace. He was full on truth. He didn't sort of like mix the two, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And that's what we try to do when we try to embrace these. A little bit of truth. This is the truth. Or, well, here's the grace, that kind of thing. And we end up, you know, sort of getting a delusion, a diluted aspect of both of those. But Jesus, when he showed up, he was full on with grace and he was full on with truth. And when Jesus walked and talked and he lived amongst the people and did the miracles, he was showing God to us. And that's why John understood. He knew through a relationship with God himself, come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, that God is love. That his love was full on grace full-on truth. Jesus called it out for what it is. That's sin. You're a sinner. But then, he laid down his life for the sinners. He didn't mince words. He called truth out. But then, he demonstrated what love was. Because love is grace plus truth you know you sort of need it in parenting sometimes don't you one times the one parents a lot of truth the other one's a lot of grace you need them together otherwise the kids are going to be in a lot of problems full on love is full on grace it's full on truth now let me ask you what background did you come from did you come from a grace background Or did you come from a truth background? Some of us went to truth churches. Some of us went to grace churches. You can err on both sides. But it's full on. Both. Full grace. Full truth. And that's why we can easily say this of Jesus. Jesus never watered down the truth. Or he turned down the grace. He was full on. All grace. All truth. All the time and if you run into that as they ran into it with jesus who came to set and establish a new day you take steps back and you go wow that's powerful but that's attractive i want some of that i'm in that way a lot of times i find myself leaning towards the all kind of grace and then i'm like but there's the truth that has to be there and then you're so much on the true side that you realize that yeah man some grace has to be extended but jesus the gift that he came to bring and john saw it was all grace and all truth all the time there's a story in uh, scripture in matthew 9 
of Jesus walking with his disciples. And uh, it's interesting because you got to picture the, um, I don't know, the gang just hanging with Jesus and they're going from place to place. He just, uh, he just uh, healed a demonized person. He healed another person of a, a physical issue. And, and they had come on to their next place and they came up in this interchange, this intersection, and uh, there were the tax collectors that were gathering taxes. And and so Jesus took his group, his entourage, over to the tax table to meet Matthew, where he's also referred to as Levi. And he's talking with Matthew. Now, tax collectors were at the bottom of people's opinion in life in the public arena because they were cheats. Yes, they were gathering taxes, but they were also very dishonest. And so here's Jesus, and he comes up to Matthew. He leans over Matthew. They'd done their business or whatever that was necessary there. And he asked Matthew, the tax collector, the sinner, to follow him. Now, can you picture Peter and Andrew? You know, John's hanging out there too, and James, the brother of Jesus. And they're like, oh, don't do that, Jesus. Please don't. Jesus, don't do that. We don't want him with us. He's not like us. Like, this is not going to turn out good, right? And, you know, Jesus, you just can't ask him to follow you. You've not even asked him to repent. You've not asked him to identify his sin. You just can't walk up to a sinner and say, come, you know, follow me. But that's what he's doing. So they're having a bit of a cringe moment. It, it sort of becomes a little bit awkward because then Jesus, like Jesus does, he takes it to another level and he says, I want to come to your house. And I love Peter and James and Aaron is like, no, this is not going to be good. We're going to have to go to his house. Do you know his house and you, and you want his friends to come with him? This is not good. So fast forward, I don't know, the next day, Matthew, whatever, he gets all of his friends or his house, and Jesus takes his following, and they go into the house, and it's just one of those awkward parties. You know what I'm saying? So here the sinners are. Here these people trying to follow Jesus, and Peter's at the back sort of rolling his eyes and going, oh, gee, this is not good. And these people, I feel awkward being around them. You know, that kind of tension thing. It'd be sort of like if you guys, you know, a bunch of you were at a party or out, and maybe you'd drank a little bit too much and get a little bit tipsy or whatever, and then in walk Carrie and Melissa. You're going to go, I like them on Sunday, but why are they here on a Saturday? This is not cool. And so you sort of mince your way around, and finally they leave. And you're like, okay, as over, let's get back to what we're doing, that kind of thing. I mean, this was, the Matthew party was not a party, you know, and I'm not referencing myself, Jesus, anything in that regard. But the party was one of these awkward environments of sinners, and everybody knew it. And Jesus not only was there, he took his followers there. And they're sitting around. Now, outside are the Pharisees, the religious heat, the elite. And they're watching Jesus, and they're checking out what he's doing and what he's not doing. And they can't believe their eyes. Did, did he just walk in? 
to that Matthew's house? And it doesn't say that Matthew left his life of sin or anything like that. He probably just turned it over to some of his underwrites to carry on the taxes. But Matthew had gotten up and in he's following. And they're like, really? This is, not, this is not what we would have thought of a Messiah. And so it says this. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners really now they're probably outside they're not going inside matthew's house right so they send somebody in to talk to the disciples say hey you know what could you tell us this why is this leader so the pharisees they're staying away from anything that's impure you know there's tiptoeing around it you know we're trying to you know live this holy pure life and look at your leader he's in there with the tax collectors and the sinners and so what does Jesus say when this word gets up to him at the front of the room? On hearing this, Jesus said, don't call Matthew and his friends sinners. That may hurt their feelings. They may raise your taxes. No, that's not what he said. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, can you picture Matthew in this environment? Here's Jesus had come following. I mean, you heard about him. He's checking him out. And he came into his space. He brought his friends. Yeah, it's a little awkward moment with uh, the disciples in this environment, because they're just not going to get along very well, right? You're thinking. But then Jesus takes it up to another notch of awkwardness. He looks at Matthew and his buddies, and he says what? You're sick. What? We're sick? Yeah, you're sinners. You're cheating people out of their money. Full of grace and truth. But... Jesus takes this moment to reveal the attractiveness because he's not running. He's not turning from them. He's not scolding them. He's actually telling the religious elite outside, go and learn what this means. Now, they thought they were pretty learned. And he says, you think you're smart? Go out and learn some more. Learn what this means. I desire mercy not all the sacrifices that you think are so in order to be a part of the religious righteous or the religious pure crowd. He says, for I've not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And there Matthew and all of his entourage sat with Jesus and his followers, and Jesus was full on grace and truth the truth not watered down the grace not diminished and this is what jesus would do time and time again and john saw this that's why he let out of his gospel and we saw the glory of the father full of grace and full of truth jesus said i'm not afraid to call a sinner a sinner and I'm not afraid to go the, to the house 
of a sinner for dinner. That's who he was. And that, to me, is attractive. It's attractive because he is not mincing words, he's not ignoring reality, but at the same time, he's bringing a new reality to all of them. There's another story in John 8, the story of uh, Jesus. He was at the temple, and you can't really fully appreciate what the temple was in that day. It was like the last place that you know they still had control of. Uh, with the Roman world around them and all the corruption that was going on. And so there at the temple the, where the altar is and sacrificers being made and then the Holy of Holies. So you got to picture this. Jesus is at the temple and they, uh, the religious elite, the Pharisees, they, others, they bring the adulterous woman to him who's been caught in adultery. And says, you know, hey, what, what do you think Jesus should happen to this woman who was caught in adultery? All right, so you got the picture, you got the scene there, and they're expecting Jesus to, to you know, on the spot, you know, be put in an awkward place and, and not know what to do. And Jesus, remember what he does? He kneels down and he starts to write in the sand. And I don't, scholars often think, well, what did he kneel down and write? And he maybe started writing all the sins of the people who thought that she should be stoned and that she should be killed because that's what the law said should happen to her. Or maybe he was writing the phrase, it takes one to know one. <laughs> you know, he was in a place, the, 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 these uh, people were in a place where like, hey, you know, condemn him. She was caught doing this. Look how much of a sinner she is. And Jesus, he does not condemn her, does he? Jesus did not condemn her. He doesn't say, you know, you're terrible. You can never be uh, saved or redeemed. And the law says that you need to be killed. No. He leans over to her and he says, neither do I condemn you. But go and leave your life of sin. Full on truth. Full on grace. You are guilty. That's the truth. You are guilty. But I don't condemn you. That is attractive. A lot of times we think we need to have it one way or the other. All truth or all grace. Not an and. But you can see it in the life of Jesus. He was all truth and he was all grace all the time. Jesus basically said to her and said to those around him, he says, there's a new law in town. I've come to bring a new covenant. The past is completed and fulfilled in me. But this idea of, of Justice related to the payment of sin and all that kind of thing. It's going to be taken care of. But I am here to establish a new day. And I'm here to demonstrate and to live and to show you who the very essence of God himself is. For I am God. I am all truth. And I am grace. All grace. All the time. There's one other story I just highlight concerning this all truth, all grace, all the time. And it's truly the story that probably puts the amazing on grace. John was there at the end, you know. He was there at the end when Jesus was being crucified. 
between two criminals. In fact, Jesus uh, acknowledged to John that he was to consider um, Jesus' mom as his mom. And, and the word is that John did. He took care of Mary uh, following the death and, and then the resurrection of Christ. But John was there. He saw this. He, this scene was unfolding. And these two criminals that were being crucified on either side of Jesus who had truly been found guilty of the sins that they were in. It says this, two other men, both criminals, were also led out to him to be executed, it says in Luke 23, 32. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saves others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And both with the words of Christ and his followers, that's what he claimed to be, the chosen one. And, and so they stood watching all this, and Jesus on the cross, and they yelled out. It's like, you know, yeah, go ahead. You know, save yourself if you're such a big shot. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him can you believe that you're in your last dying moments and the criminal on the one side of jesus is hurling insults at him just like everybody else that's gathered around that crucifixion scene the place of the skull he was going to be defiant and angry and sinful all the way to the very end yeah jesus show your But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. So the criminal on the other side of the cross of Jesus, there was, there was something in him that identified with this incredibly attractive person who he believed was that one that was chosen. And so I don't know what happened in this criminal's life, but somewhere in it, he had a heart that became bent towards being a believer in Christ. And in that moment, he wasn't like the criminal on the other side who was hurling insults. He had a tenderness and he was saying, we're all sins. We're all guilty. I am a sinner. So he identified with that. He says, don't you fear God to the other criminal? We're all under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong so he's looking at jesus you know the full embodiment of someone who was 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 a holy man who was righteous who was without sin kind of understanding this man has done nothing wrong and so these phrases are being hoisted out of their body it's being tortured on these crosses and crucifixion is a, a suffocating kind of death. And so, you know, maybe a sentence here, maybe a phrase there, and then, you know, seconds pass or minutes pass, and then something else. So this back and forth exchange is going on. And John's seeing all this all the way to the point of the end of Jesus' earthly life. And he's going, this is incredible that Jesus is there. And what's he going to say with this? One criminal, he cries out and he says, Then Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you want to think, really? 
right here at the last moment, remember me? You're going to repent on the cross? And Jesus answered him. Jesus answered, he responds to him as they're all in this crucifixion kind of state. And he says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me. To which the criminal probably says, I know I'm with you up here on this skull mountain here. He'll, I, I, this doesn't help me any. But he asked that he would be remembered in his kingdom. And then Jesus, full of grace and truth, says, you will be with me in paradise. John, I think, Jonathan, I go, really? Wow. I mean, Peter and Andrew and me and J I mean, James, we've been following you. And this criminal is going to get the same eternity that we're going to get? And Jesus says, yeah. Full on grace while there's full on truth. And you may not think that that is fair. But grace is not fair. If you think that grace is fair, then you don't understand the gift of grace. Grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. And that was the gift that was brought through the incarnation when God became a human body and showed the people of this earth what it means to be loved. Grace is not fair because life's not fair. And maybe you're here today and saying life's not fair. I hear you. But did you know something beautifully attractive? That grace is not fair either. Peter, remember what Peter did? He denied Jesus at that cross. But then Jesus, he reinstates Peter after the resurrection. And he says, Peter, I'm going to build the whole thing upon you. Really? Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, he was out killing Christians because he didn't think they were measuring up like all the Pharisees thought that Jesus wasn't doing the religious routines and the law. God came, revealed himself to the Apostle Paul and said, follow me. Grace was extended to every single person that Jesus called and grace is extended to you and I in our callings today. Now you may say, well, but what about justice and consequences? Isn't Where does that come into play? Or, you know, is this some type of soft, easy, you know, grace? And, and no. Grace, it's an it's unsettling better than fair. And grace takes into consideration justice and consequences. And Jesus knew better than anyone about justice and consequences. And he looks at life and maybe he looks at yours and he says, 
the consequences are crushing your life. He saw the consequences of sin. He saw the consequences of living in a life that, that didn't have unsettling grace abounding. He knew everything about it, and we'll address it more next week. But there's not this discarding of justice and consequences in God's grace. It's a beautiful, complementarian kind of thing that comes together. Because all have sinned, and none of us can pay it back or earn anything for God's grace. This is the situation we find ourselves in. And I don't know if you can see this, but all sin comes with, all sin comes with what's called a gotcha. I got you. I got you trapped. I'm crushing you. I'm going to destroy your life or I'm going to keep you away from everything that's beautiful. Sin. Sin comes with this gotcha. But Jesus came to get you and to save you and to bring you out of that. And that's what he's doing again this month as we share together. I don't know why everybody wouldn't want Christianity be true. I can understand why some people don't believe that it's true, and that's sort of a different matter, and that can be addressed. But in its purest form, in the original Jesus version of the Christian faith, why wouldn't our culture want grace to be true? We watch television, and we say the horrendous stories of murder, crime, and, and abuse, and all that goes on. And then you hear the story on news about somebody giving grace or extending service to one another or kindness. And you go, oh, I love that story. Isn't that great? Why is that? Because inside of us, we want grace to abound. We see the justice and consequences of sin. And Jesus came to say, sin has got you, but I came to get you. And I'm going to pull you out of that. And those of us who have been the recipients of God's grace and become followers of him this morning, we know what that's like to have received his love and to his embrace. Luke 16, 16 says this, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Up until John. And then John saw it all different. He says, wow, it's incredible, this Jesus. And he had no other way to describe it than God is love. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. But then it goes on and it says, Since that time of John, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. The good news. The good news this season. The good news is embodied in a person, Jesus. And the good news can be summarized in a word. Grace. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only one. The only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I don't know if any of you reflect on the date that it is today. Today is December 1. Do you know what happened a year ago, the first Sunday of December? See how fast a year goes and how much history goes by? It was a year ago today, the first Sunday of December, that we came into this building from our other building. 
we did the caravan thing. We were at the other building over on Winchester by the French Valley Airport, a smaller building, and we'd emptied it out. We'd move stuff over here. We were trying to get to some type of sense of being able to just gather here before we had grand opening, which was in February. But we came in here, and we sat so grateful for the transition God had given us, given us not only a facility, given us a location to really reach the valley. And our calling was to reach the valley because people need to know the attractive beauty of grace. We didn't speak that day. There was no message. I remember standing right up here, seated actually, I think I was, on this stool. And without saying any words, we read scripture. And the scripture we read was about Jesus breaking bread and passing the cup with his disciples telling them that this is my body which is broken for you and this is my cup that symbolizes a new covenant it's a new day and that new day had to do with grace and truth full on and I believe as Jesus imparted that message into the life of his disciples and then demonstrated the greatest act ever in this world. The sinless one dying for our sins on a cross so that we could have the forgiveness of our sins and then being raised from the dead as he demonstrated this incredible act of love. To them, he passed on to them the message of hope for our world today. I know your week's been pretty full. Maybe you were able to slow down a little bit for the holiday. We stand on the precipice of another December, an Advent season where we get to communicate and show the message of joy to the world through Christ. I want you to prayerfully consider who maybe you should invite next week and the next week maybe Christmas Eve the gospel is going to be full on this month grace and truth that was a memorable moment a year ago a lot's happened a lot of work but a lot of changed lives too I look forward to what this next year holds but as we close today, I want to do two things. One is I want us to gather back around the table and give you the opportunity to remember the Lord's death until he comes again. Take the bread. It's open to anybody that's a Christ follower. Break the bread off. Dip it in the juice, symbolizing the blood of the new covenant. Go and pray back in your seats or partake to the sides with your family. These are your moments to thank Jesus that he came to reveal to us full on grace full on truth and that you can be a recipient of it and following that we're going to sing an old time hymn
because I'm an old timer. And a lot of those hymns that I remember growing up singing were hymns about grace. So come, partake of the elements, return to your seats, we'll receive the Lord's offering then, but we're going to sing that hymn, Grace That Is Greater Than All Our Sins.